Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 18th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Gassuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the legacy of Aurora Mayor Steve Hogan, who passed away over the weekend just a few days after he announced he was entering into home hospice care. Pat Cahoon from Westward, uh, there's been a lot of outpouring about Steve Hogan and his legacy. What were some of the comments or the things that you already know about his legacy that stuck out most to you? Well, he was certainly a great public servant, and the note he t sent right before he was go right when he went into hospice, because this was a very quick-moving cancer since it was diagnosed, was lovely and talking about how Aurora had been his love and how he had, when he started, it was just a little town, and now it's grown into, what, the 54th largest city, growing fast. We've got Gaylord coming up this year. Just, he did an amazing job for a city he loved. Michael Fields joins us from Americans for Prosperity. I think uh, Patty hit a good point. Steve Hogan was uh, a part of the Aurora leadership over really a major growth where it, yeah, it certainly hasn't overtaken Denver, but it has become a, 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 a pretty equivalent uh, a sibling right next door. Uh, what, what strikes, what, what uh, comes out to you as some of the bigger points of his legacy? So first of all, uh, you know, our hearts go out to the Hogan family during this time. Um, but yeah, those decades of service that he put in as a public servant, uh, he was on city council, he was a state representative, he ran E-470, uh, and then had two terms as, as mayor, um, and was really in charge of this time during this big development time. Also remember that during the Aurora Theater shooting, uh, that he comforted the city, really stepped up leadership-wise there. So I think Mayor Hogan is somebody that you can look at if you're a young person in politics or anybody in politics, how public service is done. Penfield Tate, attorney at QTech Rock, also a longtime uh, civil servant as a state lawmaker and other positions. Uh, it, it, Steve Hogan seems to be somewhat of a, an unsung hero, Aurora being kind of the, 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 the middle child when it comes to cities in the metro area, Denver getting a lot of the press. But Aurora has done a lot of things and has encountered a lot of difficulties, as Michael brought up. What stuck out to you about Mayor Hogan's legacy? You know, it's interesting when you say an unsung hero because he was a hero. Uh, particularly on behalf of Aurora, but he had an understated style. He was not someone who always ran to be first in front of the cameras. He he was really focused on the substance of his job. And, and as I remember him, I, a couple of things will come to mind. I, I think among Aurora's history of mayors, he was one who really embraced the concept that Aurora was part of a larger region and state. So I think he really advocated for acting regionally and working cooperatively with Denver and you know he's the city's in two counties and in working with both the Arapahoe and Adams County Commissioners um, in helping to find ways to resolve problems by creating you know win-win-win situations for everybody uh, and the second thing uh, that I think I, I will remember most about him is he presided over Aurora during a time of pretty explosive growth but the other thing that was unique about Aurora's growth was it became, in many ways, more diverse than surrounding communities. And he found a way to help the community embrace the diversity. And I'll never forget on this show one, one occasion I gave him uh, my shout out as say something nice because he was one of the first um, local elected officials to talk about um, in the wake of the, the presidential election that certain attitudes and, and, and intolerance wasn't going to be tolerated in Aurora because Aurora's better than that. Um, a great, wonderful man, and he, he will be missed. Krista Kafer, Denver Post columnist, rounds up the panel. Uh, one of the, the lonely few left. We're, we're happy to have uh, somebody <laughs> from the, uh, that's writing for the Post. Uh, Krista, your uh, impressions of Mayor Hogan's legacy? 
Yeah, I think he shows that nice guys sometimes finish first, right? That you don't have to be flashy, you don't have to be mean, you don't have to hit back, that you can actually be a good guy, a good public servant. You can preside over what I think is a terrific city, Aurora, city I've come to appreciate for its diversity, for its fabulous food. Of course, I love food. Um, and it, the diversity is, is beautiful there. There are a lot of refugee communities, there are, uh, there are immigrant communities, and yet the city is a, is a cohesive unit. And you know, I, th I think everybody ought to just check out Aurora, if not for the mayor's sake, for its own sake. In a unanimous vote on Tuesday, the Boulder City Council approved a ban against the sale and possession of so-called assault weapons, high-capacity magazines, and bump stock. Owners, bump stocks rather, owners of the guns in question can be grandfathered in upon submitting a certificate proving ownership. High-capacity magazine and bump stock owners will have to sell or dispose of their weapons by July 15th. Patty, out of all the weeks to not have David Copel here, I think he would have enjoyed this, but he'll have plenty of time next week. Uh, our own friend uh, John Caldera is one of the folks on a lawsuit suing uh, the, uh, the city of Boulder. Probably not the first or last time John Caldera probably sued the city of Boulder, but uh, this, this made a lot of headlines this week. What'd you make of it? And it's only going to make more headlines because of where it is. Boulder, the city where animal owners are pet guardians, where I don't think you can be ugly and walk on the mall. I mean, there are all these different rules in Boulder that have passed through. It's not a surprise that something like this passed in Boulder. It's certainly not the only Colorado municipality that has made its own gun rules. Under home rule law, you can. Denver has far more strict gun laws than the rest of the state does. But in Boulder with Caldera, we're going to see a lot of action. People nationally like to talk about Boulder. It's the People's Republic of Boulder just makes for interesting press. Caldera always makes for interesting press. One of his co-plaintiffs is a 20-year-old 20, because in addition to everything else, they raise the age of ownership of guns to 21. So that's going to be another plaintiff. We're going to be hearing a lot about this both here and nationally, and I hope David comes back, but last we knew, he was weeping in Las Vegas while riding a mechanical bull. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty impressive. At the photo. NRA convention. Yeah, Perfect absolutely. timing. He's, he's a rock star there, so it was uh, good, uh, good to see him riding the bull. Uh, Michael, I, I, and I know there's a lot of issues that go with it, but I think in this kind of election year and where the electorate is right now on the fringes of both edges of the, of the party, of, of the fringes of both parties, this seems to me like a political ad waiting to happen for Republicans. It was a Christmas come early so that you know, you're, you're worried about getting your guns taken away. Here's a city doing it. Although there's other cities that have had uh, laws like this, do you think we're going to see some political ramifications from this move from Boulder? I actually think both sides will try to use it, uh, you know, to play up to their base uh, because it's very popular on, on the left to have stuff like this and, and the right, obviously, it's already started with protests and different stuff like that. Um, I just, I think this has been tried in other cities. It hasn't really made anywhere safer uh, and I don't think it'll make Boulder safer. Um, I think that with the lawsuit, one of the big things, and, and Patty brought this up, was the fact that moving it to 21 years old, um, you know, you have 18, 19, 20 year olds who can fight in the military, who can die for your country, who can vote. Uh, and now they are not going to have access to, to purchase firearms. I think that part of it, uh, there could be a big constitutional challenge on. Um, but it also points out how important the courts are right now, right? The Trump administration has taken over. They're starting to fill these federal uh, seats. And does that change, you know, kind of the narrative as time goes on? The last eight years have been Obama appointees. Um, do some of these court cases end up turning out differently because uh, the Trump administration is appointing these judges? Well, speaking of legal cases, Penn, you're our esteemed lawyer at the table. 
uh, we've heard a lot about the lawsuit and different elements of this mm -hmm. particular law. From what we know from other laws in other areas to this one, and I realize it, it just passed this week, so I'm not expecting a, a full law brief here, but what, what's, uh, what can you share about what, what we should expect legally? You know, I think Michael raises a good point. Uh, initially, um, this is going to be handled with local judges, and I suspect the law will be upheld, but the boulder in this legislation will become sort of the factual backdrop for other cases that will be brought at the federal level to try to challenge the ability of local governments to enact this sort of legislation. Uh, and, and I'm with you. I'm sorry David's not here because I came loaded for bear. I bought a copy of the Constitution with me and he's not here today. But you know when we have these debates and, and as David and I normally frame it, I always tell people the first four words of the Second Amendment are a well-regulated militia. And so the right to bear arms, um, at least under the U.S. Constitution, is all within that context. And uh, at the time the Constitution was formed, the, the, the issue of regulation was state regulation versus federal regulation and the need for a militia versus the need for an army. But there was never an unqualified right to just have an arsenal of your choosing and carry it around at the time on your horse. Um, or in your car and do whatever you wanted to do. A and so, you know, Boulder's regulation is just going to be a part of this. It's ironic that, that we're talking about this on the day of yet another school shooting in Texas um, that, that is going to have a tragic outcome with several people having lost their lives. And what it shows you is people have a desire to feel safe. And it, uh, Michael's right, both sides are going to play this issue up politically, but I think the overriding sentiment in the country right now is people aren't feeling safe. And ironically, all of these shootings, they're not in inner cities. All of these mass shootings are in suburban schools and locations, which tells you something about people's perceptions about where you're safe and where you're not safe. Some, some, some assumptions are going to be turned on um, their heads. Uh, the, the biggest problem I have with the Boulder decision, ironically, again, is something Michael referenced. I, I'm from an era when, when we were protesting the Vietnam War, and part of our argument was, is if we're old enough to get drafted and get shot at, why can't we, you know, vote uh, or be able to buy a beer or something? And, and you've got that same dichotomy here with the Boulder legislation. Krista, do you think, and Boulder's done this many times, but has it inserted a, a political hot potato for this election year? It's definitely a hot potato. The sad thing is it's not going to do anything. I mean, you think about the federal assault weapons ban that passed during the Clinton era. It, it didn't have any effect on crime rates whatsoever. And most of the time, rifles are not used for this purpose. Handguns kill far more people than rifles. And there's an irony here in that you know, a person who uses a single-shot Dillinger, an itty-bitty gun, to hurt somebody, to kill somebody, or threaten somebody, that person has effectively made that little gun an assault weapon. And yet a so-called assault weapon that's used for target practice or for self-protection is not an assault weapon. So there's a certain kind of arbitrary distinction here. What I would like to see is not these sort of arbitrary laws designated looking at particular kinds of guns. I'd like to see a red flag bill passed, like the one that came up in the legislature this time around that says, let's not just take, don't, let's not take any guns away from normal, good, decent, law-abiding people. But when you've got people making death threats, people who seem like they've got mental issues, when a person is acting aggressive and has red flags, as I have no doubt the shooter in Texas today probably had some red flags, in, and we'd like that person to get some help, but in the meanwhile, let's take away their guns. 
a, uh, you know, we all have a right to self-protection under the Second Amendment, but if you're making crazy threats, that right through due process can be suspended. So let's not target normal, everyday gun owners. Let's target people who are crazy, malicious, and vile. I think it's a good point, and also the, the report that Nine News put out uh, this week about laws that are being on the books that would uh, ideally take guns out of the hands of dangerous people, those with uh, uh, posing a violent threat, uh, but not no actual enforcement. It's uh, it's an issue we certainly talked about. We talked about it for four years. We talked about it for uh, much of the time ahead. Next topic, let's get to it. The University of Denver Law School announced a settlement in, unequal, in the unequal pay lawsuit brought by seven women professors this week. The $2.66 million settlement included a mandate that DU hire an economist to study faculty pay for five years and the creation of a password-protected database of salary information. Michael, do you think this, uh, what do you think of this settlement and do you think it's going to have repercussions for other organizations, including other schools? Well, I think it could. Um, you know, in this case, there was a settlement, and obviously, you know, sometimes you settle stuff because you're worried about the PR or something like that. The PR was happening anyway on this, so I think they actually felt they did something wrong, um, and they actually, you know, said here, here's a, a significant amount of money uh, in order to, to, you know, help make that right. Um, but I think, you know, if it can happen at a law school, it can happen anywhere almost. You know, it's like this is probably the last place that somebody should be doing this with all the expertise that you have in, in the room. Um, but I, I'm somebody who does believe in merit-based pay. I think that not everybody should get equal pay just because uh, that if they're better at certain jobs, that's great. But that's not what was happening here, obviously. Um, you know, the teachers that were here a long time that were really good at their job, um, and there was obviously, you know, something that had to be done. So I hope that different organizations, different uh, schools, take a deep dive into their salaries and look, are there inequalities based on race, on, on, on gender, whatever it is, um, that aren't merit-based and, and, and assess it. So I hope this story gets out and that people do see it and, and they take it more seriously. Penn, what do you think? I mean, a $2.6 million settlement is, is not chump change. That's a big deal. And it seems that some of the other, besides just the payment, the placements they're, they're putting in to making sure that this is addressed wouldn't just be DU. That it seems to me, from the outside looking in, that that could happen at other places to help address that issue if people felt that was an issue. What do you think? Well, no, this is not chump change, and this is a significant development and, and settlement. And, and I think, in many ways, it shows the power of uh, unconscious bias um, that exists in many institutions in our society. Uh, and you've got a place here. I mean, it's a law school where, theoretically. The people know the law, but they weren't following it, and it just shows you how pernicious some of this bias is. Now, the 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 amount of money and the the fact that you know they're going to have to make some remedial steps moving forward, and they're going to have to look back and rectify some of the inequities, um, tells you this is not just a, a, a settlement done just to avoid the embarrassment or the negative PR. I think the most disturbing thing in the DU case is. Uh, the way the facts played out is there were female professors who told the administration there is a pay disparity. And they told the administration over a number of years, and the pay disparity still persisted. And no one paid attention to it, and no one addressed it. So DU can't possibly be surprised that law professors filed a lawsuit to correct the situation. Um, th th this was inevitable. Krista, I've had the uh, distinct honor to speak at a couple of your classes. You've taught at Regis University. You've taught at the University of Denver. As uh, so it's probably an, as an adjunct professor, but as a uh, sometimes professor at other universities, 
seen this settlement. How do you feel about it? You know, on one hand, I think it is a good thing because there are unconscious biases, there are unfair things within the system that need to be rectified. On the other hand, I wonder though, what is our responsibility as women to ask for raises? I understand that one of the plaintiffs had never asked for a raise. Well, if, if the men were very aggressive in asking for raises and women were not, could that have played a part in this situation? I'm glad that this employer will be now more proactive in looking at different things and making sure that, that merit is taken into account. But also, I, I wonder if women, and I speak from my own experience, there are times I should have been more aggressive in asking for what I was worth. Patty, you run a business. You have employees of uh, both genders. You're making sure everything is as good as it should be for organization. You see a settlement like this and the different things that the organization is going to put in place. How does it impact somebody like you? Well, Krista writes for me, and she's not getting a raise because she hasn't asked for it. <laughs> you, know, you cannot put this on the women not asking for raises. I mean, you have to assume most, most companies, and certainly academic places, you're going to have yearly reviews. You're going to have tenure reviews. You have systems in place. And even if someone isn't asking for a raise, it is the right and proper thing to do as an employer to think about all your employees and to consider them fairly. So I know there was a woman who was arguing, I mean, she'd worked there for years, and this was one of her decades, and she hadn't asked for a raise. But you would assume that she, it's being reviewed anyway. That's the right thing to do for an employer. Even if you don't have the money for a raise, you talk to them. And you certainly don't just give the raise to the squeaky wheel. So this has been in the works for a long time at DU. It shouldn't have had to come to this point, but I'm glad it did, and I'm glad they're taking the steps to remedy it, and I would guess all academia right now is considering the same things. The Denver Police Department, among other entities, are investigating the, an incident at the Rise Up Community School where police officers in search of a suspect reportedly drew their weapons on a teacher. The Denver Independent Monitor is involved, as is Denver Public Schools. Penn, this story is still developing, but uh, none of the developing parts of it seem good. Uh, it it uh, seems that there's a lot to investigate here, and a lot of entities between the school district and uh, Denver Police and the Independent Monitor involved. From what we know right now, what do you think? You know, it ties into the prior two topics about unconscious bias and, you know, weapons, and in the context, again, of what's happening in Texas. The biggest issue here is, all right, so if, if you, you give the police full credit, they got a report from a staff member at the school that a student who was a person of interest in connection with a shooting in Lakewood was on the grounds and they said that the staff member claimed the student posed an imminent threat. But the problem is when the police responded to the school, they didn't go to the office or check with any the administrators, they sort of stormed the place and they drew weapons on a staff member who is not a student who would have been a party of interest that they were looking for. They pushed one teacher out of the way who said, you can't come in my classroom without a search warrant. They physically moved her to the side. They pulled students out of their desk. They made them take off hats so they could see their faces, made them produce IDs, and had they checked with the front office, they would have found sooner that the student they were interested in had already left campus before they arrived. You know, it's 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 part of what undermines the credibility of the force. We all want the police to protect us and keep us safe. We all want people to report suspicious behavior to the police, but we want the police to respond appropriately and judiciously, especially when they're thinking about drawing their weapons. This was out of control. 
Chris, with so many different people as part of this invest investigation now, it seems it's going to make a pretty big impact. This isn't just never police. There's a lot of folks involved. What are your thoughts? Well, they were looking for somebody for um, a serious crime, right? A person of interest in a shooting. We're all a little bit freaked out right now. We're all a little bit on edge as far as school shootings go. How they handled it was clearly wrong, but you also have to think about what position they're in. They are sort of the, the, the bulwark between us and people who shoot people. And so when they went into that school, they took you know, looking for a person who is a shooter very, very seriously. They handled it very wrong. But where is the line? I mean, how can they walk the line to treat innocent people, these other students, in a way that preserves their dignity while also handling a situation with urgency? Patty, with everybody involved, do you expect some pretty big, uh, I guess, results coming from this investigation? Well, we're going to have a couple investigations, too. We already have the manager of safety saying he's looking into it, the independent monitor. DPS is going to be looking into it. Th um, it's interesting because Rise Up, which is downtown, a downtown charter school, 150 students, so it's not a huge, huge campus. 150 students, it's kind of a last chance high school for them who've been in trouble in various ways. So when you talk about profiling, they're, they're not the kinds of students who are shooting up the suburban house, high schools. They're not the students in Parkland. But it is refreshing in some ways to actually see the police enter when there's a th word of a threat after Parkland. But in this case, you have the teacher who says, that student isn't in my classroom and you need a warrant. You're not believing the teacher. I mean, at this point, there were a lot of steps that were really, really wrong in this case. And I think we will find out the deep, good for the DPS actually taking action. We've seen too many cops not take action, but they definitely needed to do things a little differently here. Michael, wrap it up for us. Well, I'm interested to see what these investigations say. Um, you know, they could look a little bit different on what the police says and what DPS says, et cetera. But I think there is the public safety has to be a top priority. Um, and the fact that this could have been a serious, you know, you think about if that person, you know, the suspect would have, you know, taken somebody hostage or shot somebody in the school, the, the call would have been, you know, what were the police doing? They, they knew they had information. And so there, you want to err on that side. But then also, you know, it's a Penn's point. It seems like it was a way overdone that there were people, you know, telling them this person's not here. They don't have to pull their guns. They don't have to shove people out of the way. Um, and so, you know, there, there has to be a balance there and that maybe more training has to be done in order to say, you know, how serious is this threat really? Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a tough call and the investigations will, will tell us a lot more. It's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Denver International Airport is having a great year, record traffic. They're about to embark on their new renovation of the terminal. But it would have been really nice when they were celebrating the low-cost air carrier that is doing direct flights to France to actually take that, air, uh, that carrier and not spend $15,000 per person in some cases. Good for Brian Moss on Channel 4. Let's remember why we like having reporters, because they are the watchdogs on what's happening with your dollars. Here, here. Michael. Well, I had the same one, actually, but it's not just DIA. It's also Mayor Hancock and his staff that had something to do with this. And it just seems like they're, every week there's something new uh, with, the Hancock, you know, with the Hancock's administration. And I'm just waiting for, for a time when you know, we get through a week without uh, something coming up. And so you know, I think they need to figure it out there um, and, and get more in touch with you know, what the people want. I think they're waiting for that week, too. <laughs> Penn. They're praying for that week. <laughs> uh, you know, I, the topic we covered, I, I, it's just... I'm glad DU settled the matter. Now they ought to set the standard on a going forward basis for uh, higher ed institutions around the country. Krista. It's kind of an ongoing disgrace, but it's uh, 
Front Range school boards that are going to be denying kids access to Rocky Flats uh, National Wildlife Refuge because they've been following certain scare tactics. The park is going to be open up this summer. Let's all go visit, see the, see the wildlife, and trust that the scientists have made a good determination. It's also the subject of my column today. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice plug. Time to say something nice about somebody? Patty? Well, I'll get to, I'll get to Krista on that one another time. <laughs> uh, camp Amachi down in the southeastern corner of Colorado, it was the only Japanese internment camp in the state during World War II. Uh, Governor Carr did his best to take care of the American citizens who were transported out here and lived there. They'll be um, alumni from that camp will be returning this year as they have for the last 25 years. And in the middle of it, um, a preservation is, effort is underway and they just moved w the old recreation barracks to Camp Amachi and they're going to restore it. If you have never been there, it's stunning to go see, see it and think about what happened in World War II to these American citizens. Michael. I give a lot of credit to the members of the Douglas County Sheriff's Department uh, who were involved in the shooting last year when Zachary Parrish died. Um, they went and did a joint interview and, you know, it's sure tough to go through that to talk about it, uh, but it let the nation kind of see the, you know, the, the pain that they went through, tell their story, and, and talk about an important and brave deputy that died. Ken. Um, Five Points Music Festival. It's taking place this year right here on Welton Street, our home. Um, check it out. It's these these neighborhood festivals are part of what make our city great. There's nothing like the jazz festival down oh here. Oh man, points. it's going to be wonderful. Krista. In light of today's shooting, I want to give a shout out to D.A. George Brockler and also House Representative Cole Wist for supporting red flag legislation. I know they both took a lot of heat for it. I know it didn't ultimately pass in the Senate, but let's hope for next year. That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Be sure to take CIO wherever you go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it, we are there. Also, check out our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And one, uh, one last reminder, remember, uh, last week, if you weren't here, uh, we had our big, glorious debut on HD. Hope you're enjoying that. Uh, but we also had a class, a fourth grade class up at Silver Creek Elementary. They did skits all based on Colorado Inside Out time machine shows. And there were also, all those were all on CPT12.org. You just go to our CIO page, scroll down to the extras, and they're all right there. There's five of them. As Patty brought up Camp Amachi, one of them, uh, the skits, actually talks about that era, uh, the 1940s in Colorado, and they talk about the same thing. It, as I said last week, I highly recommend watching them because they will re-instill your faith in our future. Trust me. Uh, for everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.